Nuns versus Nurses, Episode 5. There's something about the sterile, institutional nature of a hospital that provides an unmistakable feeling. Everything from polished tile floors to glass doorways, the framed bucolic pictures on muted green walls, the placement of the workstations in the rooms, all contribute to an environment that is so recognizable that even with no patients and little actual medical equipment, you know exactly where you are. And so Sister Arcadia does, as she breaks down a large glass door after finding it locked. Now standing in a central foyer with no one to witness her sudden entrance, she takes a quick second to interpret her environment. She has brought a stethoscope. She seeks to return to the group of nurses who occupy the building. Arcadia knows the nurses of this world have little actual medical training, but she knows they do seek to learn and offer any healing method they can to a population that does not always want to accept them. And at the same time, Arcadia knows the nurses, like everyone, must protect themselves from forces that seem only to want to make knowledge more difficult to acquire. As a result, distrust for the nurses' methods is abundant despite an increasing track record of success. Arcadia knows there is suspicion because the nurses recently acquired some more advanced equipment, and now they seem to be acting in ways they never have before. It is also still not clear how they have such a pristine headquarters in a world that seems only in decay from a more advanced time. Arcadia herself stands tall, in peak physical shape. Her dark skin reflects small bits of light from ceiling fixtures that are clearly powered with electricity something very few in this world have ever been aware of or witnessed to. As she hears footsteps approaching from the adjacent hallway, she quickly turns in their direction. A silver-coated key on a beaded rosary pulls from her chest in centrifugal motion and whips around her as she turns. She now recognizes the first of the three nurses to suddenly approach her as they turn a corner, and now the other two follow and stand just behind the first nurse. By the time the three nurses are in place facing her, Sister Arcadia has quickly thrown the stethoscope she held to the floor and takes the precaution to pull two martial arts blades from a holster that holds them, blades facing forward, one in each hand. In a firm tone, Arcadia addresses one of the nurses that she recognizes. Mildred Cheswick, she says, this time you have gone too far. Nurse Kay and Nurse Wood see the blades that Arcadia holds and step in front of Nurse Cheswick to form a defensive wall and protect her. Kay tenses, looking for an opening in Arcadia's defenses, and Arcadia says, Tell your crew to back off, Mildred. I have come only to ask questions. It's clear you have formed some unholy alliance. This building and the recent advanced equipment you've acquired, it all appeared so suddenly. We've always suspected that those who wear the red robes and their purple-clothed lackey knew more about this world than we do that they could be trying to interfere with our efforts to learn. And we know you have been seen at the ancient stone citadel they occupy. What devil's bargain have you formed? How are they supplying you with this technology? And is it worth pilfering our supplies and hurting one of my sisterhood? Enough, says Nurse Cheswick. We will not be accused of doing anything but protecting what we are given. We are far too busy with our concerns to attack or steal anything from you. And Nurse Wood adds, Nurse Cheswick speaks truth. You have known her long enough to believe her. Once not long ago, our work was your work. Do not be upset that we were provided this facility to pursue a more scientific approach than you. I'll leave it for others to decide if your claim to this facility is as valid as you profess. But we have all the evidence we need as to how you are supplied so well. 
it will no longer be at our expense. Your agenda seems far less pure than you claim. This world needs help, and it is obvious you have far more answers than you are sharing with anyone. For too long, we have turned a blind eye to your actions. You have no more right to. And again, Cheswick interrupts her. Don't lecture us about rights, Arcadia. We have a right to pursue our goals without anyone attacking us or accusing us of encroaching on them. Do not provoke us. We wish to live in peace, but you are well aware we are capable of defending ourselves. Make your next move very carefully. Arcadia holds up her hand in disbelief. There was a time we were close, Mildred, but that time is no more. The full wrath of our might will be upon you if you continue on your current path. You must, and now Mildred Cheswick loudly states, enough. She has now fully stepped behind Nurse Kay and Nurse Wood, so they cannot see her reach in her pocket to pull out three throwing stars of sharpened steel honed to a razor-sharp edge. They only see the light glint off the metal as the deadly stars fly by directly towards Arcadia, slicing through the air as they spin. And the nurses feel more than they hear a zing that vibrates in their ear as they try to understand the impossible fact that Nurse Cheswick must have thrown the stars and attacked Sister Arcadia. Sister Arcadia launches her body backwards with all the force that she can as she sees the stars flying towards her. And the cloth of her habit is torn as the third deadly star to pass catches and cuts the fabric only as it flows behind Arcadia in her flight and touches none of Arcadia's flesh. Are you out of your mind, Arcadia yells, as she rolls to a defensive stance from her sudden jump. She reaches under the folds of her habit from her belt, she pulls a pair of nunchucks that she begins to swing in a tight circle before they even seem fully visible to the nurses. I am here to de-escalate, she says. Nurse Kay is not able to believe Nurse Cheswick would use any weapon unprovoked, so that dichotomy creates an excuse in her own mind for pursuing the idea that no other possibility exists. So without further thinking, she says, I don't know who threw those stars, but I'm not armed, and know you will not use your weapons against me, Sister Arcadia. And Arcadia responds, Then I suggest you start backing off. You know I have no desire to hurt you. Even now I only seek a safe exit, which I'll take if you back up. And as the two nurses step backwards, Cheswick alone has already turned in another direction and moves as fast as she can to escape around a corner, the corner where Arcadia first entered the building. Knowing she can make no single move that'll solve her dilemma, Arcadia throws the nunchucks at full spin and speed towards Kay and Wood, and in almost the same motion, turns to pursue Cheswick. True to her word, Arcadia's aim does not bring her weapon to do any direct harm to the two young nurses. Instead, it hits a shelf above them, and the supports that hold it up and the supplies on the shelf tumble onto the nurses. Canisters of liquid that crash and collide with heavy equipment opening and soaking the two nurses, who immediately react to clean themselves off as quickly as possible. And as they look up to see only empty hallways, with no sign of either Cheswick or Arcadia, they are left to wonder, how did things get out of control so quickly? Back at the camp, Jackie and Lee find the large hands that grabbed them as they ran have eased up and they are now able to see they were only being pulled a few feet away, back to Mr. Kernan's workshop, by Mr. Kernan himself, who still, as always, has a cloth wrapped fully around his eyes and head, assuring he cannot see anything around him. Jackie and Lee are just old enough to begin to question why things are the way they are. They are starting to look at things in a way they never have before, and the questions they have only seem to be growing every day. The only existence they have ever known is they are orphans in the care of Sister Dames, 
and she and the rest of the nuns in the camp have always taken care of them and kept them safe. Only recently have they begun to wonder the inevitable questions of how they came to be in Sister Dames' care and to understand the nature of the camp and that their mission is under attack. They wonder how the pieces of stone metal they are as to find in the caves of the camp can be turned into such amazing things by someone who is blind like Mr. Kernan. And most recently, they've discovered a mysterious beeping and flashing light that comes from under a tarp in Mr. Kernan's shop, and they've gotten their first look at what is underneath. Now they are put at ease as Mr. Kernan speaks to them in the gentle tones he always has. I hope I didn't startle you, kids. There's something we need to talk about right away. You may have noticed things have been moving rather fast. I want you to have something that will help make sure things turn out okay for you. And he reaches his hand out to Lee and opens it to reveal a gold-covered ring carved with a large fish-like creature on it. First, here is a ring I want you to keep with you at all times, Lee. When things are at their worst, think of this ring and everything will get better soon. And as Lee reaches to accept it without thinking or hesitation, he starts to put it on his finger. Jackie reaches towards him, trying to stop him, and says, Wait, Lee, let me see that before you put it on. What is that made of? Mr. Kernan answers, The same thing as this necklace, Jackie, but the ring is covered in gold, and this charm for you is covered in silver. And Jackie sees that Mr. Kernan holds out a necklace with a key attached to the end of it. And she knows that only the nuns wear keys on a necklace. And she says, But this is a key. I never really... Th- thought I would get one. Does this mean? Am I, I going to be? And Mr. Kernan tries to answer her questions. That is not my decision, Jackie. For now, just keep it safe, close, and hidden. We don't want you to be in any danger. Meanwhile, Jacob's dream is coming to an end. Since his recent sudden arrival in this world, He has hardly had time to even start to puzzle out where he came from or how he got here before he fell off a cliff and entered a dreamlike state. A dream that started with him having a conversation with Sister Dames, a nun. She advised him in puzzling ways that she was more than part of his dream, but somehow guiding him through it while she too was dreaming. The idea of being asleep while being aware at the same time begins to overwhelm him. He feels the helplessness of his state and the frustration of it starts to gnaw at him in a way he had been too distracted to feel before. While he was busy trying to understand everything happening around him, he had forgotten the plight he was actually suffering from, the inability to have any choice in what was happening to him in this world he was learning to understand. This sudden awareness and the aching desire to be able to change the situation becomes all he can focus on. But that awareness is not accompanied by any known solution. So Jacob simply begins to focus. He knows the only thing he has control of are the thoughts in his mind as the world spirals around him. And so he uses those thoughts to develop an intent. An intent to somehow, even though it is unknown, to reach beyond this helpless state that he is in. And if all he can do is focus his thoughts in this unknown direction, an attempt to experience anything but the helplessness he feels now, then he decides that is the best way to proceed, to control what he can, and attempt to get a better result than he has so far. And so he blocks out all other awareness and thoughts and begins to focus only on the thoughts of becoming more aware, taking control of his body again, 
and finding answers and solutions to his all-encompassing questions of his current existence. And as he blocks out all other thoughts, the last thing he is aware of is that the hunting party has turned his physical body over to the authority they spoke of, and his body lies motionless in a large examination and operating room, strapped to a table that holds his arms outstretched and his torso and legs in a straight position. The table, which forms the shape of a cross underneath him, is connected to tubes and wires that start from beneath Jacob's still body and reach high above him into the shadowy corners of the room. Circles of bright white light shine down on the scene, directed to light his body brightly, but causing most of the room to be cast into dark shadows. The hum of machinery accompanies the slight motion in the thin tubes that both inject and pull fluid from Jacob's body. Again, like when the nurses had extracted his blood, there is a glow to the liquid as it is pulled from his body and slowly rises in the tubes. The last thing Jacob is aware of in his dream, as he tries to focus away from the scene, is a hand that touches a control screen. He sees a man, completely dressed in purple attire, press a final control. At this point, Jacob succeeds in his intent to focus his thoughts elsewhere to a complete degree, and his awareness of memories of his previous existence start to flash through his mind. They do not inform him of how he got to this world, or even fill in any of his memories of who he was before this all started. But he sees violent flashes of the world he came from, important historical events that he remembers happening or was made aware of. He sees a president riding in the back seat of an open limousine, and he hears a shot ring out from a grassy knoll as the president is shot dead. He sees a grieving wife become a widow instantly in that moment as she tries to react to impossibly save her husband's life. He sees other men and symbols flash before him and more shots ring out, more blood fly and spill. He sees a simple X and a raised dark skin fist. He hears a shot and sees blood fly again. He sees a pair of wire rim glasses, hears a guitar play and then a shot, blood splatters and a necklace with a peace symbol falls and splashes into the blood. He sees a dark-skinned man walking to a prayer meeting in a white robe and sees his body violently rock and collapse as three shots blow through his chest. As each shot rings, it seems louder and slower than the one before, as if they were no longer separate shots, but somehow now becoming one single shot that accumulates each time it is heard. And more blood spills on the floor of his dreamscape. He sees a dark-skinned man step out on a small metal and concrete balcony in the early morning, and he sees blood splash all over the man's clean-pressed white shirt and tie as another shot rings out, louder still than all the other shots that came before. Then he sees a small hill rise through the fog of the early morning, and everything moves slower as the fog parts and his view gets closer to the hill. He sees three wooden crosses rise from the hill, each standing over ten feet from the wet grassy earth they are pounded into. On each cross the body of a man, each hanging from one of the crosses from their hands which are outstretched and pounded into the crosses with small metal spikes. The spikes are just thick enough to hold the weight of their bodies and just thin enough to leave the bones of their hands intact. Their feet too are attached to the cross and flesh is smeared and bleeds where spikes are pounded through their bones of their feet, helping to hold their weight. Coagulated blood dries dark 
and still occasionally drips and spills slowly. But Jacob is no longer paying attention to these memories or his dreams. He is completely successful in his intention to direct his thoughts, and they are now completely focused on more important matters. The man in the purple robes, who holds the screen with the controls, continues to watch them, however, with grim delight. Now sweating profusely from his excitement, he puts the control pad down and starts to half-talk to himself and half to the helpless victim he has successfully extracted these memories from to view. And he says, And now, my sleeping friend, you have served the purpose I had in mind. The information your memories provide is exactly what I need. Those fools in the red robes have enough power. It is time to let them know they cannot control me. I was charged with finding this crucial piece of the puzzle that has eluded us. And now I will have the information they seek to hide. The end game is near and you are powerless to stop it. Now only I will have the answers about this world needed to take control. I owe you a great deal for making things so easy for me, Jacob. Let's find out more about where you came from and just how you got to this world. Shall we continue?